here respected. Expert level information, entertainment, education. Rev here, we got you covered as you hit your destination. Climate rules everything around me. Dream. For those who lost focus, close your eyes and just dream. Open your third eye, now the world is your office. Coolest, coolest show you know the hip hop chorus. Well, I am excited for this conversation for many reasons because it's one, it's just an important conversation. I'm talking to one of the people in our movement who has been has done so much um, for our movement. So if you don't know, I'm talking with Christiana Figueres, and she is the founding partner of Global Optimism and the former executive secretary for the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Christiana, how are you doing today? I am doing very well. Thank you. Thank you so much for this very kind invitation. I'm looking forward to our chat. I'm speaking to you today from my home country, Costa Rica, the wild and wonderful Costa Rica, um, where I came to live last year. I would say thanks to COVID, I think many, many chickens flew home to the coop uh, and, um, and I was one of those. And I'm really delighted to be home. I haven't lived in Costa Rica for 45 years. Wow. So it was about time to come back. Mm. Well, welcome to the podcast, and thank you for joining our conversation. So for those who don't know you yet, and I'm sure many folks in the climate movement know you very well, but there's some in our audience who may not be as familiar. Please tell the audience, who is Christiana Figueres? Hmm. Well, number one, I am the mother of two fantastic women. That's the most important role that uh, that I play. I, and I think that all of us play right to make sure that uh, we are supporting a generation that comes after us that is healthy in mind, body and soul. And uh, some of us do as as parents, some of us do it. Otherwise, but I think we have to recognize our huge role in stewarding the next generation and in providing them with as safe an environment as possible for them to be able to prosper and do the good that they know how to do. So number one, I am a mother. Number two, um, I am, I don't know, somewhere between a climate change activist, a cheerleader, uh, a thorn in the side, uh, uh, many different roles that I play, um, but basically all of them encouraging or hurting the cats, all, all, all types of cats, governmental cats, corporate cats, financial institutional cats, individual people cats, all kinds of cats uh, onto a path of rapid decarbonization because that is what science demands. And I have actually been working on this for more than 30 years. Um, for six years of those, I led the United Nations uh, Framework Convention Secretariat in the lead up to Paris. And it was my, um, my uh, scary and very wonderful uh, pleasure to uh, work with all countries of the world to deliver the Paris Agreement. So here we are six years later uh, and still trying to figure out, hmm, and now what? But we'll talk about that. Yeah, no, we're going to get to that. Um, my next question, and I'll frame it this way, you know, for me, my community, specifically of those who are in this country, but 
are global, and those who are fighting for freedom, those who are fighting for oppression, those who are fighting for the liberation, particularly of black, brown, and indigenous people, those who have been oppressed. Um, and specifically, I, I come from the Gulf, the Gulf South here in America. I was born in Louisiana, and so my home state, and I work primarily with young people. That is my community. Who, who is your community? You know, um, I, I love the fact that you have um, an identifiable community. Um, I guess I aspire to have an identifiable community. For me, my community is everyone, no matter what age, no matter what geography, um, no matter what profession, no matter what, what the color of our skin, our sexual preference, no matter what, everyone who is either already awake enough and conscious enough of the threat that we face and hence doing what they can do about it. Or, and this is a very important part of the community, those who know that something very strange is going on, who still haven't understood what is going on and especially have not understood what they can do about it. So those who actually can be activated to contribute to what is eventually, obviously, and ultimately a global solution, but that also requires individual contribution. Um, and, and the reason why that's important to me and you know why have I spent more than 30 years on this is fundamentally because of social justice. Because let's be frank, climate change is the maximum top, top level injustice that humanity has ever faced. It is unjust between the global north and the global south because it's the global north basically that has caused this problem and the global south that is going to pay the highest price. It is unjust between what can I call it? Socioeconomic classes, because those, those haves have definitely emitted much more than the have-nots. And it's the have-nots, as has already been shown just now over this weekend, um, that are the ones who are getting crushed much more by, um, by climate change. It is unjust between generations, mm. because it is basically generations prior to me that caused this problem and generations after me that are going to feel the brunt of, uh, of what we have done. Hmm. And it is definitely, definitely unjust with respect to gender, because with all due respect to the wonderful gentlemen that are our listeners here and viewers, um, it has been mostly men who over the hundred past years have been taking economic and, dis and investment decisions. And it is women worldwide who are the ones that are also feeling the brunt. So whether, you know, this lack of justice in climate change, basically the disenfranchised and you can, you know, you can say disenfranchised according to geography, according to generation, according to gender, according to race, according to anything that you want to look at. It is the disenfranchised who are the most vulnerable and the least capable because they don't have the access to the least able 
to adapt to these changing circumstances. So for me, fundamentally, climate change is an issue of social justice writ large across all of those dimensions. Well, thank you for that. And let me say this, Christiana, let me say for this show, you're on the coolest show. You can you can call it, you can call it like it is here now. You don't got to worry about me. You, you can look read dead in my eyes and say it is men. And I'm going to join with you. It has been men who have caused this problem. Let me, let me, and you ain't got to blink uh, one way or the other because you, you call it, you call it facts on that one. You call them balls, balls, and strike, strikes, as they say in baseball. So, no, you can call that one. And let me say this also. You can also say that the country you sitting in right now, Rev, in America has had a huge role to play in this, in this situation. So, please, you know, uh, I think folks appreciate that kind of candor here. Um, let me also just say this, you know, you, one of the things people know about you is just actually a picture. They see from the cop in Paris when your, your hands are raised um, in that, in, which is a part of just like the moment when all the nations came together. That is clearly will be a part of your, 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 your legacy. But when it's all said and done, what do you want your, I know you want to be more than just a, a picture of that moment. What do you want your legacy to be? Yeah, it's not so much about the moment, right? It's about the mission. It's about the mission. It is about uh, whether we are eventually, because we're definitely not there yet, but the, whether we are eventually within the time that has been allotted to us by science and every day is one day less, whether we're able to correct the course that we have been on for the past 50 to 70 years. And so course correct is uh, what I would love to be, um, I guess, written on my epitaph, right? Um, course correction. <laughs> we went from a um, hugely destructive, extractive economy and social behavior to one that is restorative and regenerative. Um, and, and that, you know, goes beyond climate change. Climate change is probably the most evident example of that, but it's not just about climate change, right? It has to do with everything that we've done about our natural resources, everything that we've done about our human resources, and everything that we have done or not about our human values. We are still stuck in this consumer extract, use, discard, waste um, mentality, as opposed to a mentality of let's restore, let's restore degraded lands, let's restore these oceans, let's restore our relationship to nature, our relationship to each other, and our relationship to ourselves. So restoration, regeneration, honestly, that needs, that, that is the real challenge. Yes, climate change is part of that, but it's not just climate change. It is every other social and economic and political issue that we can think of. We are still in a very, very self-centric, um, self-destructive mentality mm -hmm. that we have to change. Yeah. You know, a lot of our listeners here listen to this conversation because of the issue of the connection between climate justice um, and environmental justice and racial justice. Yep. Um, and so this conversation really is important because we we don't have as many folks um, discussing the international dialogue, which is when we're going to change that. But you you get it has to lead in. So 
For those who are listening, what is the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change? And also well, COP and all those kind of acronyms that. Yeah, yeah, all those terrible, around. terrible, uh, <laughs> terrible acronyms. Um, you know, just on, you know, on, on acronyms, uh, when I was asked by the, sec- the then Secretary General Ban Ki moon to head up the negotiation process for climate change, I honestly, I had to like really practice how do you say UNFCCC because it has three C's, right? <laughs> And uh, and I had to introduce myself very often as, you know, the, the head or the executive secretary of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. I mean, honestly, what a mouthful. But then <laughs> if you use the acronym UNFCCC, I had to literally like count on my little fingers. Did I get the three C's in? Yes. <laughs> so, you know, eventually I got it. Um, but um, but it is it is quite harrowing to have to uh, deal with these acronyms that most people uh, don't understand. Well, let me well, throw in there also the also the UNEP. Let me throw a few more acronyms in there. Yeah, go at it. Go at it. Explain explain all those to UNEP, the 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 UNDP. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, no, there are the the UN is really good at uh, at creating acronyms and just to keep us on our feet. Then people who work at the UN also invent new acronyms all mm. the time just to see if you're really up to date. So acronyms aside, you've asked me what the convention is. So the yeah. the convention was actually one of the three major international treaties that were adopted way back in 1992. There was a a treaty adopted by countries for climate change, one for biodiversity protection, and one for the prevention of desertification. Um, And uh, that was adopted at the Earth Summit way back, if anybody was alive, in 1992. Um, And then since then, the Climate Change Convention has actually adopted several legal instruments. One of them is the Kyoto Protocol, and the most recent one is the Paris Agreement that was adopted in 2015. And with the Paris Agreement, and, and, and I should say it was adopted unanimously by all 195 countries. That's very unusual in the United Nations. Usually these things are adopted by consensus, which means the majority of countries agree. But this one was adopted by unanimity. Every single one of the 195 countries agreed to chart a course toward a global economy that is decarbonized, that is has been stripped of the very damaging greenhouse gas emissions that we have put into our economy since the Industrial Revolution. And to get to that decarbonized or what we call net zero, because it would be zero emissions, um, to get to net zero by 2050. And the Paris Agreement also then establishes not only that as the long-term target, but also, if you will, as though it were a race, that's the finish line. But there are also milestones along the way where every five years, countries have to come together to tell each other what they've done and what more they're going to do. Um, And it's also interesting because to use the analogy of a race again, and I just came from Greenland from the extreme E-race. So I have racing racing uh, mentality um, with me right now. But um, that that race that we're all in is definitely a race against time and has the very interesting characteristic that every country has chosen their own lane. So some countries are going much faster than others. 
Some are using different instruments along that race, and that's all fine. What is absolutely critical is that the race, all the lanes in the race are actually headed in the same direction toward net zero that and that they get all get to the finish line. That's the difference between the climate change race and the extreme e-race of electric vehicles that I was just went to in Greenland, because in a normal motorsport or any kind of sport race, there, there will be one winner and the others will come in second, third, fourth place, whatever. On the climate change race, this is the thing. Everyone has to win. Everyone has to win. Because if we don't, if there's one that is not winning, then that means that nobody can win. We all, we're basically all on the same planet. We will have interchangeable, constantly interchangeable circumstances. And we all have to get to a decarbonized economy by 2050 in order to avert the worst effects of climate change. So it is a race against time. Um, and, uh, and it is a race for every country, for every organization, for every institution, for every individual, because there's a lot that each of us can do. You know, as you're talking, you know, I'm thinking about as as global citizens, as folks living all on this planet together, um, you know, we, we all have a, a shared goal fighting for existence. Um, and so, and hopefully the UN is that body to bring us together, obviously COP. Give us your thoughts, though, on kind of the utility of COP and specifically your thoughts from COP20 uh, in Paris to, to now. So COP, just to, you know, un unpack that acronym, so many acronyms, um, that acronym stands for Conference of the Parties, COP, which is the annual meeting of all national governments of all countries where they come together in the case of Paris, uh, which was in 2015, to adopt this legally binding agreement that is called the Paris Agreement. In the case of the COP coming up now, because these COPs occur every time at the end of the year, this is COP26 this year, which will be held in Glasgow in, um, in, in the UK. And the purpose of this COP26 is for countries to come to inform each other of what they have done since 2015, but much more importantly, how much more they're going to do over the next five to 10 years. This decade between now and 2030 is the most important decade in the history of humankind without a doubt and without any hyperbole or exaggeration. Because, and that's why it's called the decisive decade. Because it is between now and 2030 that collectively we're all going to figure out whether we're able to cut our greenhouse gas emissions by 50% by then, by 2030. And if we do that, we open ourselves to a world that is actually much, much better than the world that we live in now. And we can talk about a great world that we can look forward to. But if we miss that, we will actually be condemning ourselves, but more importantly, generations after us to a world of constantly increasing human misery, especially for the most vulnerable, especially for the most vulnerable, which is why this is so much of a social justice issue. Mm. And, um, and, and that's exactly what we have to avoid, because the fact is, when you think about it from a historical point of view, the Industrial Revolution 
was great. It brought a lot of development to the world. Correction to some people in the world. And it left many people behind and abused the skill set and the willingness of many people to participate in that industrial revolution. So when you think about it, if if climate change has been caused by the industrial revolution and that industrial revolution already came at the price of a huge inequality, then the last thing that we can tolerate is for now that we walk out of the industrial the, for the, the uh, industrial revolution on to the next economic and energy and revolution, we cannot repeat that factor of leaving those that are most vulnerable out of the benefits. So tall order, but one that we cannot walk away from. You know, as, as you're talking, and thank you for clarifying, COP, because uh, that's very important. I will, I will tell you, Christiana, one time I had to go, I, I made a joke. This was, this was my opening. I had, I was, we were fighting to protect the Arctic. And I uh, went to a uh, Bureau of Land Management meeting, and uh, I told them, my joke was everybody was calling it BLM. And, I, and my, my opening joke to them to, to kind of soften it, because I was obviously we were there really trying to push to protect the Arctic was, man, I'm here at BLM, but I thought I was coming to a Black Lives Matter meeting. <laughs> and so they, you know, it was, everybody in the audience laughed. I like, I like laughed. that. <laughs> everybody, the, the folks at the up front didn't laugh though, but everybody behind me laughed. So it was, it was, a, it was a good one. So thank you for clarifying what COP is. I think that would be important for our audience <laughs> in that process. Wait, but 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 here's here's a question: How different are those two? They're not actually. Yes, they're, they're not. Point. They're not. They exactly. actually no, no. They're actually, believe it or not, both those BLMs are are very much uh, very closely linked. No, yes. they actually. Very, no, that's actually that. You know. Well, you know, you you're pretty sharp there, Christiana. You know. You know. <laughs> that's why you got to where you are. So, but they, no, they're very, they're very closely, they're very closely linked together. Um. But speaking of link together from that cop to cop 26, you know, we are, we are in the countdown to cop 26, you know, so what's, what, what, what are we trying to achieve? What can we achieve? Are we, are we headed to a road where, where, man, it, it looks, some days it looks encouraging, but then some days it looks like, man, we're, we're, we're going backwards here. What, what can we expect? And I know that you also have a countdown as well, an event before. And you're coming. And I am coming. And so explain both of those so people can understand your event um, and then the event going to the actual event of COP26. Okay. So our event, yours and mine, yes. I, which we will both be, um, is uh, is going to take place a few weeks before the United Nations um, meeting. And it's basically a platform for so many people to um, inform and share of progress that is being made in many different sectors, in energy, in transport, in land use, um, in 
in uh, urban living, in uh, agriculture, so many sectors that are actually moving forward. And what we want is to hear those stories, hear the, the barriers that they're facing, but also how are they moving forward? And above all, how they actually can be taken to higher scale because we do need solutions to be accelerated. So it's going to be actually quite a an inspiring few days. Um, not only because you will be there, but yes, because you will, be, you will be joined by many peers who, uh, who are working on these issues in very inspiring ways. Now, um, beyond that, we will have the official meeting of the United Nations that will take place uh, not in Edinburgh, where you and I will be, but rather in Glasgow. Um, and that meeting, which is the COP26, is um, basically for everyone to uh, to show where everyone, meaning the countries at that point, that is actually mostly for national governments. And they will have to come forward with their future um, with their future commitments. Now, where are we on that? The fact is that we should recognize that we are in a transition. We're in a transition from a very, very high carbon intensity economy based on fossil fuels such as coal, oil, gas. Um, and we are in a transition over several years or maybe even decades toward an economy that is actually clean and green with renewable energy as opposed to coal, oil and gas and with much better productivity of our land because we're using sustainable agricultural practices, et cetera. So that transition from where we were in the past to where we need to be in the future is messy because every transition is messy. And we just have to accept that as a reality. You give me one example of any transition, especially one as complex as this, that is not messy. And what I mean messy is you will find evidence in that same transition period, you will find evidence of the past and you will find evidence of the future. So when, you know, when I get asked, so are we making any progress? Well, yes, sort of, because we have evidence of the past still clinging on and we have evidence um, and, and points, data points of the future that we're moving toward. The critical piece about this is, can we actually push the transition to move toward clean and green faster than it is moving now because we're running out of time. You know, uh, just for folks to know, when I get there with you, one of the things that I will be discussing will be this conversation around petrochemicals um, and its impact on our communities. And hopefully a lot of the voices um, that we will be collecting, I will be able to share those voices so you can hear right from the communities themselves. And so, and from folks who are literally battling these petrochemical uh, facilities in the community. So that's one, the little teaser there. So folks are, are, are cool. should, be, should be excited about what we're going to be. That's, that's, that's my little piece, but there's going to be a lot of different pieces. That's not a little piece. That's a big piece. Yeah, that's, that's a, yeah you're right. That's a, that's a big piece. That is a big piece. So please stay tuned for, for that and our, our conversation around petrochemicals. Christiane, I want to ask you this. this. You know, on this show, we, we talk about real, real talk. And so let's talk about the calls coming from communities for Global North accountability and Global South leadership. 
And so what would it look like from your perspective for the global South to lead on solutions? Yay! (laughs) Now that is so cool, right? That is so cool. Because here's the thing. We in the global South, we have most of the population today. We definitely will have most of the population tomorrow, for sure. We have most of the young people read young brains because, you know, by the time you get to be 65, like I am, my brain cells are dying, you know, I I don't know how many every day. So you've got to get the fresh brains with fresh brain cells on this issue. And where is that in abundance? That's actually in the global south. In addition to the fact that just from a moral perspective, as I've already mentioned, it was the global north that caused this in the global south that is actually paying the huge price of this. So how do we turn those tables around? Precisely by supporting global South leadership, leadership that has to come from the from the realities of our communities so that the solutions that we put on the table are actually relevant and Mm. effective in the realities that we have, not solutions that are basically dreamt up for us or that were designed for global North circumstances. We have to be able to do that for ourselves, to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and be able to put these forward. We have conditions in the global South that are just not in the global North. For example, we have 800 million people um, today that still don't have any electricity. Most of those, I was just thinking one country that doesn't in the global north. Yeah, maybe there are a few of those that are in the global north, but most of those are in the global south. So question, how are we going to get clean, cheap, accessible electricity to all those people who are still living without electricity, which means they're living in abject poverty because mm-hmm. electricity is at the basis of development. It is at the basis of, um, of, of, of human well-being. And so those solutions have to come from us because we know our reality better. That doesn't mean that all the funding has to come from us. There has to be support, financial and technical support coming from the global north. But honestly, we're full of bright, young brains with good ideas. um, And we have to be able to put those ideas on the table. What is the environmental justice movement to you? in this context in global communities? Well, we've already touched a little bit on that, right? When I said that climate is the greatest, the the mother of all injustices. Um, And environmental injustice uh, has been done uh, for decades, if not already hundreds of years. And, uh, and, and, And that expresses itself in many different forms, including the fact that those areas that are more environmentally fragile or toxic are precisely the areas in which we have um, those that are disenfranchised. Um, and, and, And that pattern has been repeating itself for years and years and years. And so to me, environmental justice and social justice racial justice, disenfranchised uh, justice, they all come together. They're all the same thing. That's why I said, what is the difference between one BLM and the other BLM, right? Because the fact is they're all together. And, you know, it is only us in our puny little brains that have decided that 
human rights are over here in one block, uh, in one box, and climate change is in a different box, and um, equality is in another box, and protection of biodiversity is in a fourth box. It's only us that actually have invented the that boxing mentality, assuming that all of these issues are independent of each other. Uh, the fact is that as we learn from nature, in nature, we know that nothing is disconnected. Everything is interconnected. And we have to be able to deal with our social, economic, and political issues in an interconnected fashion and know that as we improve on one issue, call it gender equality, call it racial injustice, call it environmental justice, as we, or as we progress on one, we're actually having a very good um, knock-on effect on other issues that are related. So it, it's not easy to begin to think like that because we've, we've grown up trained in, you know, thinking that all of these things operate in silos and independently from each other. Um, but luckily, we're beginning to understand that that's not the case and that everything is interconnected for good or for bad. So our challenge here is to use that interconnectedness for good. No, I, I agree with you. But let me let me actually just ask you this on a on a follow up to that question because I think that you know I don't know if you know the amazing writer Audre Lorde. She says we don't live basically single issue lives, and one of the things as you're talking, it it also comes it it is the standpoint that it feels. Not what you're saying, but I just want to tell you that it is the feeling from the overall movement, particularly from just not even just from the UN or the larger Greens, that they're missing that particularly poor people, black people, brown people, people, people who are disadvantaged. Everybody we talked about earlier, they, they don't separate these issues at all, right? Exactly. So, but what what does happen is that folks who come into this from a standpoint of privilege do separate it. And that begins kind of our problem. Do, do you, from your lens, from where you're sitting, either from the world stage or even in Costa Rica, do you sense that sometimes folks with privilege sometimes intentionally separate these issues for their own benefit? Well, that's a good question. Do they intentionally do it? I wouldn't go as far as that to say that. I don't think they intentionally do it. I think... Um, Everyone who's so much closer to these issues in real life understands that all of this is interconnected. Now, those that approach these issues from an intellectual, academic perspective will fall into the simplicity or the simplification of thinking that all of these issues are separate and siloed perhaps just because it's easier to get your arms around it. And because it is sort of from an intellectual, conceptual point of view, it's just tidier, you know? You can put everything into a little box and put a little, you know, a little knot on it, and then you move to the next box. It's just easier analytically. But it definitely does not represent the reality of life. And it certainly doesn't represent the reality of those that are under the negative effects of all of those issues. So I think the challenge here is, and, and I've actually seen in the past few years that even from an intellectual, analytical, academic point of view, that 
social sciences are beginning to understand this. Um, and, um, and we're beginning to see students being taught the interconnection of all of this. It's going to take a time. It's going to take a while for that to seep into policy, right? Because it is basically the generations after us, the ones that are in school now, that are going to grow up with a very different um, approach to these issues from the one that I was taught. And it's going to take them to get from where they are in school, university or wherever to the decision table and to making policy until we will see the effect of this integration and interconnectedness that is undeniable. So unfortunately, we have a time lag there, but um, but but I take heart from seeing that even in the rarefied atmosphere of, uh, of the ivory towers, um, they're beginning to get it. The penny is beginning to drop. Uh, understanding that aspect and how has colonialism and imperialism then uh, shaped the conversation about solutions for the climate crisis? Yeah, also a really um, such a deep question. Um, Obviously, the supremacy of one nation over another, of one people over another, has historically um, been very much about the extraction of natural resources or the abuse of labor. And, um, and, and, and that has obviously led to the concentration of um, resources, wealth, power, on one side um, and a huge gap between that side and the ones that are actually uh, doing a lot of the on, on the ground work. You know, is it not time that we move beyond this? We have been discussing this for decades, but, but here's the thing, we have been admiring that problem. We have not been doing the work that it takes to go beyond that. And I'm, I'm totally going to go out on a limb on this, but I think I have the deep sense that our addressing climate change is actually a very interesting bridge to a human society that will evolve at least a little bit, if not a lot beyond the human society that we had last century. Precisely because climate change is only the tip of the iceberg. It's only, you know, the, the, the tip of the arrow. And there's so many things that are, that come together under that. And we are going to be forced to look at, at all of that. And so I'm actually hoping, praying, uh, I don't know which one of the two, but but certainly lighting many candles and not just lighting candles, but working toward using climate change, not just, you know, to understand how we decarbonize energy and transport, not just the technological fixes. Those will have to come too, and they have to come on scale um, and in, in scale and on time. But beyond that, I'm actually also, in fact, even more interested in what does that mean for us? as a human race? What does it mean for me as an individual? 
What does it mean for me as I see brothers and sisters around the world? What does it mean for global solidarity? What does it mean for justice? What does it mean for working hand in hand? What does it mean, not just for me sitting here in Costa Rica, but what does it mean for a single mother having a child being born today in the Sahel under the environmental conditions that they have? We've got to get out of these tiny, weensy little worldviews and understand that all of us impact everyone else. We're all in this together. And honestly, I mean, maybe, maybe this is not going to happen, but I am so, so intent to use climate change as a, as a catapulting mechanism to, yes, do the technological fixes, yes, change the financial system, but come on, let's get to the really important thing. Who are we as humans on this planet? What is our purpose? And what is our legacy going to be? Mm -hmm. You know, this time I always goes so fast in this conversation. I just really have just a couple more questions. I can't thank you so much for being here um, with us. Um, this question kind of follows up on what you just said, kind of in regards to there have been global calls for loss and damage um, and climate reparations. Uh, structural debt forgiveness. Um, and these are not new calls at all, as you know. But what will it take for the global powers to answer these demands? What a good question. You're full of very good questions today. <laughs> um, so just for listeners, loss and damage is the term that is used by um, people working in climate policy to... Um, summarize the fact that we have um, many very quick, drastic impacts, such as the ones that we're seeing in the United States, the fires in California, the um, floods in New York, killing people in their basement, uh, the, um, the conditions in Europe, fires in Siberia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So all of those are events that happen very quickly and have um, a huge toll. But climate is not just about those. Climate, let's call those, those are acute impacts. But climate is also about something that is much more chronic. And that is all of the slow onset effects, such as rise in sea level. That doesn't rise from Sunday to Monday, but it is continuing to rise desertification of so many areas that were productive and are becoming arid and desertified so that they become deserts and people can't, um, can't produce their food anymore. And there are many others of these that are, we call slow onset that are just steadily hitting us very, very slowly, but very compellingly. Um, and what are we going to do about that? How do you measure that? How do you measure the impact of that? How do you measure the cost of that? How do you prepare for that? How do you become more resilient and more adaptive to it? Can we be resilient and adaptive? Or are those conditions under which we just have to go, right, the only thing that we can do here is flee because there is no adaptation that is possible. So that is a whole set of issues that go way beyond the floods, the droughts, you know, the fires that we're seeing now. 
Those are long, long-term issues that we already know are happening and science tells us they're only going to get worse. And because they're long-term and because they are basically not quantifiable because we don't know what that is going to cost, that is one of the reasons why it's so difficult to get into this. Because when the global south comes to the global north and says, look, not only, you know, are, are we being hit by the cyclone here today, but also what about sea level rise over the next 100 to 200 years? And the global north turns around and goes, well, how much is that going to cost? Can we adapt to that? And there's no answer. That is the problem right now. Politically, I would say it's quite convenient that there is no real answer, no real measurable answer, because the global north is having a very hard time just even standing up to the issues that are at hand right now, to the acute issues. They're still having a very hard time standing up to that, let alone to chronic issues that are going to take 100 and 200 years to be um, to be felt. So this is my last question but before i get to that is there you know you know we have we were a pretty good sized audience is there, i just want to give you the floor anything you just want to make sure and say before i get to my last question here yeah i i i just want to share um that it is very understandable if you look at climate change and you begin to you know just begin to fathom the complexity of it it's very very understandable that you will feel grief and loss and frankly hopelessness this is so big so large and what can i do about it i'm just you know one little person here i cannot do anything about it and i'm concerned about that because that climate grief is um is real and, and, and honestly, it hits me at least once every day. But here's the trick. If we stay in that grief and in that sense of loss and in that sense of hopelessness, then we go down a spiral, a very dark spiral that only spirals down. And it's not good for, our, for ourselves, for our mental health. And it certainly doesn't help us get out of this. So without minimizing the sense of loss and of grief without minimizing that precisely because we're aware of that loss and that damage that we're causing precisely because of that we have to turn that around and go oh boy therefore i'm going to do something and my suggestion is just pick one thing pick one thing that you're going to do whether that is going out there and planting a tree whether that is being more careful with your recycling whether that is making sure that you're buying green um green energy uh whether that is being much more mindful of unnecessary energy waste etc cetera, etc cetera. just pick one thing and understand that you are contributing to the solution and do it very intentionally, not just, you know, absentmindedly, do it very intentionally. So because it is actually by having specific actions that we begin to feel to get out of our disenfranchisement and into a sense of agency. Hmm. So this is my last question, man. I'm, I'm so glad that we had this conversation. I know it's going to be this a blessing and it's very powerful for those listening. So this is so really on your last piece there in regards to grief and anxiety. Um, and I, I want you to also kind of speak to this and then also the last question as well. 
because I think that it's important that for communities who are made vulnerable to climate change, it can sound like the politics is speaking past them and not addressing their pain and suffering today. So this is my two-part. When you address climate grief and anxiety, who are you speaking to directly? And then we are a Black-led podcast, so we would be remiss if we didn't ask, how does your vision change the status quo for Black people? So who am I um, talking to? I'm talking to the um, sensitive, soulful part that each of us has within us. Doesn't matter, you know, where we come from, how old or young we are. Uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't matter. Each of us is blessed with a little part of us that is a soft part of us, a sensitive part of us, a, a part that honestly knows um, that there is more space for solidarity than we're making right now. And so I speak to everyone who understands that grief, who has felt that grief, as have I, um, to say it's it's good. Let's honor that grief. You know, don't put it under the rug. Honor the grief, because honestly, we have destroyed a heck of a lot. Honor the grief and don't stay there. In honor of the grief, move to action. In honor of the grief. Because otherwise, we are just exponentially increasing our powerlessness. And we don't want to be powerless. We have an agency and each of us can actually have a contribution to make. And to be very specific, there's a great website that is called countusin.org that gives you 16 different, very, very concrete things that you as an individual can do to contribute to, um, to a better world. So um, pointing you in that direction in case you want very specific ideas. And how is it going to be better for the Black community? I would like, I would like to um, share a story with you about that. A beautiful nine-year-old little Black girl died in London uh, several years ago because she was hospitalized 29 times for asthma. Why? Because when she walked to school, she walked along roads that are completely polluted by the cars that go by, which burn fossil fuels and basically put the fumes of those fossil fuels into her lungs and into the lungs of 8 million people around the world who are prematurely dying because of that. Most of them, most of them, people who live in congested, polluted, parts of cities. You can tell me who those people are. They are in the United States. They're black, brown, poor people who live in those areas. Not very different from the demographics in every other city. Now, this child would not have died if that burning of fossil fuel hadn't been there. And her mother, Rosamund, 
is has started a fantastic campaign to get especially mothers, but also fathers to stand up for the rights of their children. Every child has the right to breathe clean air. And that is especially true in communities of people who live in areas that are congested and polluted. And I, I tell you that very specifically because I could also, you know, give you a sort of a, an intellectual analytical answer, but this is something very specific that everybody can do. Everybody can take a look at the air quality of where you are living and start or join the movement to demand clean air for our children. People, children are dying from asthma. They are not, their brains are not being able to develop because the pollution in their lungs, in their bodies is such that they can't even, that they have brain stunting. They're having all kinds of not just respiratory, but blood circulation problems. We are losing the potential of our children to the burning of fossil fuels, in addition to climate change, because it's the burning of fossil fuels that is responsible for both global pollution and climate change, but also local pollution. Let's at least act to stop local pollution in the communities of those people who have not caused climate change and are not responsible for that pollution. Please tell us how we can keep up with your work and how people can reach you and how they can support you. Well, thanks. So um, my co-author and I, Tom Rivet Carnett, we have a book out um, that is called The Future We Choose. And uh, it's... I've, I've read it and it's fantastic. All right. Well, thanks. And it speaks to many of these issues and at the end also has a list of things that you can do. So um, I point you to the future we choose. We also have a podcast, um, Outrage and Optimism, that is focused but on, on climate, but goes way beyond climate to um, many, other, um, many other issues. Um, and I would, um, I would invite you to join us either through the book or through the podcast. Um, and certainly do send us messages through the through the podcast. We read every all the messages that are sent to us. Um, and um, you know, we have to move toward an attitude of we can do this. Just you know, sitting back and saying this is too big and too difficult for us means we're abdicating our responsibilities. So I come back full circle. Who am I as a mother? Who are you as a parent? as an aunt, as an uncle, as a grandparent, as a friend of one child. It is up to us as adults to actually change the course of where we're headed right now. And we can only do that if we truly dig in to the incredible potential that lies within us and that, frankly, we haven't used yet. So moving from uh, this is too big and too large to saying, this is something that I can contribute to. And together, we can do this. And that is our guest today. She is the amazing Christiana Figueres. And I am Rev Yearwood, your host of The Coolest Show. Thank you, my sister. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us at Think100Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com 
where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100%, which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people. It's the coolest show you know.